0: evening to you. Psalm 143 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands tonight. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is a gift from the Lord to you tonight and He wants you to read it and get to know it well and get to know Him uh, through that. So make that Bible a gift to you this evening. In Psalm 143, I don't know, there's a lot of different titles we could give to it. It's a psalm for uh, the saint who is in a position in his life or her life where they're just completely crushed and overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. Um, you could also call it a psalm for when you hit rock bottom. This is one of the great things about the book of Acts is to read that book and to see the different places that the apostles were in. Paul found himself in um, circumstances that he spoke of from his own life. That, I mean, right in, right in the middle of God's will for his life. And he doesn't know whether he's going to survive the trial, humanly speaking. I mean, he thinks this is going to be it. This will be the death of me. And Paul had several of those kind of rock-bottom experiences. But it's been kind of the portion of God's people through the ages. We hit it in our lives as well. We wonder, well, will we survive this trial? This is as low as it can get. We've hit rock here, Lord. And uh, so what's going on here? And good to know that uh, as David writes this psalm, he hit those same kind of places But again, the beautiful thing that we know about Paul, that we know about David, is we not only have the snapshot of the moment that they write this psalm in, what they're experiencing, what they're feeling. David is communicating honestly from the Lord. We get a look at that and we realize, wow, I've been in a place something like that in my own life. Maybe not exactly the same trial, but I felt the same things in my life and then to, for us to know the rest of the story concerning David's life and that every single one of God's promises came true related to his life. And the same thing is true of us. And so he begins this Psalm 143 and he said, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplication. So he's in a really tough spot, as we'll see a little bit later in the Psalm, how bad his circumstances are, and the thing that he does is the single most important thing that we can do when we find ourselves in a deep trial, and that is to pray to the Lord. I think it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul writes about spiritual warfare and the powers, the principalities, what we're up against, and the battles that we face as Christians, not just on a physical realm, but on a supernatural realm, a spiritual Realm that he talks about the armor that we're to wear, but then he moves into the realm of prayer. And when we find ourselves in these difficult places like David found himself in and everything, the circumstances are so hard that they're disorienting. You can't can't trust what you're feeling. You can't trust what you're thinking. And so who can you talk to that's outside of what you're in the middle of that is clear in his thinking, clear in his judgment, very clear in his understanding of what it is that's going on in your life. And, of course, the Lord is uh, supremely that one. Other saints can be have that kind of place as well for us, but the Lord has that kind of position. And so he begins to do the one single great thing we can do in trial, and that is to begin to pray to the Lord. And it's wonderful to realize that when we do pray, I mean, you think about how God honors prayer. The moment here we prayed just a moment ago, Pastor Franz opened us up in prayer. You can be just driving along on your way to work tomorrow or this, wherever it might be, and you can just be thinking about nothing. And then in one instant, you just enter into prayer with the Lord and instantly that prayer is coming before uh, the very throne of God. And God values our prayers. He really does. Prayer is always an expression of our dependence upon God. So he views it as an expression of faith. And faith blesses God. He's he's like any father. He is blessed by the trust of his children in him, especially when that child is in a difficult place. And so... The Bible even teaches that the Lord takes and he stores our prayers in vials and bowls. It's something that he treasures related to uh, the the prayer that's lifted up to him. And so he hears our prayers, he answers our prayers, and I think it's wonderful to think in just any instant in time I have access to the throne of God, the ear of God, the heart of God, uh, and that access has been purchased to us. Uh, by the Lord Jesus. And I like that passage in Hebrews, I think we all do, where it tells us that we're to uh, enter in boldly into the presence of God before His throne room, and we can enter in boldly there and have the absolute expectation that what we will receive from God is mercy and grace that we have need of in time of our need. And the reason... That we can be confident of that is because Jesus has turned the throne of God into a throne of grace for us. And God is for us. And that's important for us to know. And so isn't it wonderful? God's throne is a throne of grace. That's a great encouragement uh, to prayer. And so God, he, he begins to prayer pray, Lord, listen to my supplications, my requests that I'm making to you. In your faithfulness, answer me and in your righteousness. And so, God, out of your nature, your faithfulness, your righteousness, do what is right for me in this situation. And then in verse 2, it's beautiful. He said, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight, no one living is righteous. And sometimes we can find ourselves in a deep trial. And the trial is so deep that we can think to God. And as we pray to the Lord, we say, Lord, here I'm lifting this up to you. And I know that I'm not a perfect person. And I know that I've got a long way to go before I am perfect. But if you, if I hit a throne of judgment at this moment, and I'm going to meet you as a judge rather than as a one who, who has compassion upon me and my need. I think it will sink me, Lord. And so, again, David would have very much appreciated the writer of the book of Hebrews' description of the throne of God as being a throne of grace. It does appear that David, whatever circumstance he finds himself in, whether it's entirely... Um, because of some bad decision that he's made or because of some sin in his life or whether that's just a part of what's going on here. He does recognize that he's in the pickle that he's in a little bit because of um, some failure on his part. You know, a sin of some kind, to what degree, how big, how small might uh, might be at all. But But he recognizes that He's done something wrong here, and uh, and he's having, and, and he's bearing some consequences related to this. The enemy is piling on related to all of this, and and yet um, and yet he he tells the Lord, "Listen, Lord, I want you to know at the outset what I'm asking you to do here. I'm asking you to do because you're a gracious God, and not because." You know, I'm, I'm deserving of it. I have made a mistake here. Uh, no one, uh, for in your sight, no one living is righteous. And so don't judge me in here. I, need, I don't need the belt <laughs> or the switch. I need your grace. I think it's very important for us to realize that no matter when we do sin, And everybody sins. Every Christian sins. There's this doctrine of sinless perfection that Christians don't sin. We just kind of reach this place of um, perfect sanctification. I've never met such a Christian yet. And I know I'm not one of those Christians. I do know that Jesus, when the disciples said, teach us to pray, Lord, he included in that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, which means it's a daily prayer. And also in that prayer, he taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. So we all sin. And we sin on a daily basis. We're less than like Christ on a daily basis. But we should never ever allow our failure or our sin in a time in which maybe we're dealing with the consequences of that or a great trial comes into our life. We should never allow our sin to condemn us away from praying to God and approaching the Lord in prayer. And it's very important to understand there's a difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the devil. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, when we sin, He will always convict us of our sin in order for us, number one, to recognize it so it doesn't become a pattern in our life but then also so that we can be freed of it. We can say to God, Lord, I'm conscious now by your Holy Spirit of the fact that I just sinned right there in that situation. I wouldn't be aware of it unless you were convicting me by your Holy Spirit. And so um, I confess that sin to you. I ask for your forgiveness. But the Holy Spirit, when He deals with our sin, He will always deal with it in a way that will draw us closer to God for forgiveness. The devil is just the opposite. He will always condemn us. And so here we'll sin, we'll become aware of our sin, and then he will come along and he'll whisper the lie into our ears. You're going to pray now and ask God to help you in this situation after what you've done? Oh, you're right. You know? And so we start to think logically or we think humanly speaking, fallen man speaking rather than thinking with the mind of Christ. And then we allow the devil to move us away from prayer and making things right with the Lord. Because after all, how could I approach God so quickly in prayer for help in my situation, forgiveness in my situation when I've sinned so recently? And it's just the oldest tactic of the devil to drive people away from the Lord when we've sinned. And there's about only one thing worse then sinning, and that is allowing the devil then to use that sin to drive me away from God. And we see here in David a wonderful example of the fact. David knew a little bit about sin. I mean, the devil could have just kicked him up one road and down the other with condemnation all of his life. And yet here is David who recognizes and knows God well enough under the Old Covenant, the revelation of the Old Testament, say nothing of how we know God to be as a forgiver in the New Testament. And he was confident of the fact that he could approach God, even in his failure, and ask God to help him in the situation that is a little bit self-inflicted. And I'll tell you, that can really keep your head above water sometime when you find ourselves in a tough place and we realize, oh, no, Lord, I think I had a lot to do with the pickle I'm in right now, and are you, are you going to be for me in this situation? And he is. And then he begins to describe what his enemy is trying to do to him. Of course, his enemies are physical, uh, the armies and all of the enemies that he had within the nation and the surrounding nation. We have a greater enemy than uh, David uh, ever had, though David faced him too. But this a- applies to us in our spiritual battle related to uh, the devil. And so he describes what it is that his enemies are bringing against him. He says, for the enemy has persecuted my soul, persecuted. He's crushed my life to the ground. What language. He's made me dwell in darkness. He's just put me right down in the darkest pit, in a pit so deep it's like those who've been long Dead. I mean, this thing is so deep that I feel like I'm dead, and therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. Wow, that's a tough trial that he's in the middle of. That's rock bottom. When you say, when you say, I'm just within inches of dying in this trial, Lord. So what did he do? He said, I remember the days of old. He just stopped in the middle of all of this when his own condemnation could drive him far away from God. and His enemies are attempting to take his, his focus off of God. And he says, now I'm going to think back on past deliverances of God in my life. And he remembered this long history that he had with God and a long history of God's faithfulness to him and miracles in his life. How many of you sit here tonight and you know of at least one miracle that God did in your life as a Christian? Just raise your hand. So look at, I mean, look at the room. Doesn't God know how to nurture and develop our faith And when He did that miracle for you of deliverance, He did that miracle to deliver you from the circumstance that you were in at that moment, but also to build a history in your life for future situations that you would face in your life in which they would be so great that you would wonder who could deliver you from this, and, God, you would be able to go back into the Rolodex of your relationship with God and remember that miracle and, you, and, and to remember, I've received a miracle from God in the past. I know what that feels like. I've experienced that, and God will do that in my life Once again. And so that's how God works. And we realize tonight look at how many of our hands went up here tonight. You're a miracle of God. Each of us a miracle of God, salvation, but then even after salvation, uh, of course. And then to realize God has worked miraculously in my life in the past. What He's always been, He'll always be. And so, Lord, You've delivered me in the past. You can do it again. And He just remembered all of that. He said, I meditate on all of Your works, all of the past things, not just deliverances, but all of the other miracles that God had done in His life. In Psalm 121, Looked unto the hills, from whence cometh my help, the psalmist wrote, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The one that we cry out to in the middle of difficulty is the one who spoke all of that into existence that you and I drive around in and walk around in every single day. He just spoke it into existence. He didn't break a sweat. It wasn't hard for him to do. He spoke it into existence. And so this is the God that we are praying to, asking to deliver us. I meditate upon all of your works. I muse on the work of your hands. Again, all of this creation around us. And then he said, I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. And this just speaks of his intensity. He longs for God and the great trial that he's in. In the same way, the dry land, the driest of land, Uh, thirsts for rain. And then he continues in verse 7, and he says, Answer me speedily, O Lord. Help, you know, as soon as you can. He said, My spirit fails. Three words in the English language in verse 7. But that's a tough place to be in when it comes into our life. And David says, my spirit fails. I am sinking here in this. Beautiful thing about when my spirit fails or my strength fails, the Bible says that his strength is made perfect in weakness. It's so hard when you're a strong person to be made aware of how weak we really are. And how God, how's God going to make us aware of how weak we are unless he allows circumstances to come into our life that overwhelm our resources? It's only as he pushes us beyond our own resources that we discover his always. It's always that way. So none of us is exempt from this. He will always bring circumstances into our life that are greater than our own resources or we will live our three score and ten within the limitations of our own strength and never experience the greatness of His power. But His strength is made perfect in weakness. I don't know what that um, thorn in the flesh that God gave to Paul. Talk about a strong man in order for God to take and give him this physical affliction, whatever it was, that Paul cried out three times that God would deliver him of that. And the Lord spoke to him and told him that his strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul then said, all right, I will glory in this trial and in in this weakness because his strength is seen in my weakness. And it's not an easy trial to be found, and David finds himself in that trial. My spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me, lest I go down like those who go down, uh, lest, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Lord, if you don't look at me in a favorable way, I'm going to die. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you I trust. So when he says, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, he is saying, Lord, uh, help me to receive your answer to my prayer as quickly as possible. And uh, first thing in the morning, for in you I trust. And it's beautiful there in verse 8. He just commits to the fact that says, "Are oh, whatever's going on here in my life, I trust in you. And I choose to operate on the basis of faith in you. This thing is rocking me all over the place like somebody threw me in as one of those little bouncy balls in a clothes dryer. But I hold on to my trust in You. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to You. He prays for God's guidance in the middle of all of it. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In You I take shelter. Teach me to do Your will, for You are my God. Your spirit is good. And lead me in the land of uprightness. And so he's in the middle of this tough trial, but he just stops in the middle of it and he says, Lord, I freshly commit myself to you and to your will for my life despite whatever the circumstances are. Sometimes the trials come in and it's a test of that, not to reveal to God or to anybody else, but to reveal to us whether no matter how hard it gets, we continue to commit our lives unto Him and we don't walk away from Him in order to escape the trial when that might be the easiest thing uh, to do. But it isn't, it's isn't; never the greatest thing in the world. and In fact, it's the world's worst thing to do to try and escape a, a trial by taking my life back under my own control and then trying to sneak away because there is something harder than God's will In life, and God's will can be very, very hard. We think about Job. There is something harder than God's will, though, and that is our own will. That's why we got saved to begin with, was because our own will was in shambles. And then he says, Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake, for your righteousness' sake. And that's a good thing to remember, is that God's reputation is bound up in us there's a whole spiritual realm that watches you every day there's a world that watches you once once people know you're a christian they become like those lizards where they got one eye goes here and one goes over here they're watching us like crazy it's just the way that it is i did it to christians I was raised a little bit in the church, and so I knew what they were supposed to be and I was going to watch and see whether they walked to the talk or they were hypocrites or whatever. But once I knew you were a Christian, you had my attention. And God knows... That his reputation is bound up in us and if he fails his promises or we end up being wiped out because of some attack of the enemy or something, he knows that it isn't just us that goes down the tube but his reputation. No, it's wonderful. For your righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul for I am your servant. Lord, make them pay for doing what it is that they have uh, done to me. Sometimes you find yourself in great spiritual warfare and you get to the end of it or you're in the middle of it and you say, Lord, I don't know what the devil's doing here. I only pray that you make him pay big time for whatever it is that he's doing here against me. That's all I ask, Lord. Just make him and his kingdom really pay a price for doing what they're doing. And so here is this whole um, attack of his enemies. Again, it speaks uh, very powerfully of uh, the attack of our enemy, the devil, against us. And it's important for us to realize that Satan is a defeated enemy. It's good to remind him of that. I remember Daryl Mansford used to have the sticker on his guitar case. When the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. I don't know, you know. I try not to talk to the devil much, but I know what what it's saying there. The devil's a defeated enemy. He is a defeated enemy. Colossians chapter 2. Having disarmed, speaking of Jesus, principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And if we pray to God when we find ourselves in these places, we pray to the Lord and we ask him for these things and then we wait for his victory. The devil is a defeated enemy. I remember listening to someone when I was a young Christian, and they used to say, Yes, he's a roaring lion but the Lord yanked all of his teeth out. And I thought that was great, and I wanted to believe it, except I've been bitten a few times. And so I <laughs> then I read the book of Job, you know. So, but I like, I like the, um, to remember related to this psalm that the Lord will never allow us to be overwhelmed by the devil. Let me read a, verse, a couple of verses to you from John's Gospel, Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That's a firm grip, isn't it? And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. That is, they are absolutely united together in this one thing of keeping a firm grip upon us. The Bible says that underneath of the everlasting arms. Well, sometimes it takes a great trial to realize when you fall down far enough and then you get caught by those arms when you realize if God didn't step in and catch us, then we'd be done for. And so beautiful to realize the Lord has his grip upon us. There's a couple of pastor friends that I have. When they sign their letters or the e- emails, they sign it, in his grip. And it's a good reminder. It's not really the way I would sign a letter, but I always like the reminder of that. Not only does Jesus have His grip on you and on me, but the Father does as well, no matter how deep the pit, no matter how fierce the warfare. Greater is He that is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. Psalm 144 is a psalm for battle. And David writes, Blessed be my rock, who trains my hands for war. sometimes pe- people get a little upset about the military imagery in the Bible uh, or the fact that there were wars in the Bible and these kind of things. And, and I don't know what world they're living in that they think that we can get along without police forces or military forces. We need them. Romans chapter chapter 13 speaks about the fact that um, a nation is intended in terms of God giving structure to a nation, that we are a nation's responsibility to its citizens is to provide protection from their citizens, from attack from without, that's war, and also from attack from within, talking about crime. And so militaries, uh, police forces; these things are God-given things. One day there won't be a need for any policemen. They'll all retire, and and uh, we'll all retire. The thousand-year reign of Christ. There won't be any need for any military at all. But right now there is, and that's the world that we live in. And we can be thankful that there is a uh, there uh, a military, and there are um, police forces, and the necessity uh, of this. And so he said, blessed be the Lord, my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And then he starts to describe the Lord, my loving kindness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me and you look at those words a loving kindness my fortress my high tower my deliver my shield the one in whom i take refuge who subdues how in the world did david ever come to know god on that level except that god allowed him into circumstances where god alone could be those things to him that's how god david knew these things experientially about God was because God allowed things to happen in his life where David then ran to the Lord to be these things in his life. He discovered God to be that and from his own experience uh, with the Lord. And the Lord, again, he does the same thing in our lives. We would never know God with all of the titles that God gives to himself, all the descriptions that the Lord gives to himself Even in the New Testament, we would never know those things. They would just be words on the printed page to us unless God loved us enough to put us in circumstances where He could be that to us and circumstances difficult enough that we couldn't be that to ourselves. Only He could be that. And then for the rest of our life, we can speak of Him as the faithful one not from somebody else's experience, but from our own experience. And so God allows, He allows these difficult times and He allows battles to occur so that we can uh, discover God and know God in this way. And again, this speaks uh, to us of the spiritual battle that we're in. And so He cries out to the, uh, uh, describes the Lord here and. And, uh, and how he's come to know the Lord. He said, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him and the son of man that you are mindful of him? Oh, boy, poor David. <laughs> poor old-fashioned David. Still believing in that worm theology. thinking that somehow a proper assessment of man in the light of the greatness of God is, uh, you know, the way that a person becomes a great worshiper of God. David believed in the worm theology and this whole idea of the worm theology comes from Isaac Watts' hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And a line in that uh, particular hymn says, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. And our worship of the Lord is directly proportional to how we view our own insignificance and unworthiness in a relationship with God and yet that God takes knowledge of me and He is mindful of me. And that's what worship comes out of and that's what David possessed. We live in a culture, we've been talking even about it recently, a culture where It is such a self-important culture that people just think that, of course, God is interested in me. I'm so interesting. It's it's, It's such an arrogant, arrogant culture that we live in. And it gets carried over into how we relate to God. And we are in the driver's seat in a relationship with God in the way that a secular man views a relationship with God. I'll tell you, I'd rather live in verse 3 and verse 4 than all of these nonsensical things that are happening today because I marvel the same way. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Lord, what's your interest in me? Why do you care about me the way that you do? Why do you leave your fingerprints all over my life? Why are you so faithful to me? Why do you make me feel when I'm in deep, deep trouble as if I'm the only person in the whole world that has your attention, even though I know that everybody is feeling that same thing? And it's a wonderful thing to to be in awe of that. And it just makes us love him all the more and want to worship him all the more. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you're mindful of him? Man is like a breath and his days are like a passing shadow. And then, of course, the greatest demonstration of the mind of God toward us is found in the New Testament. Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. You say, Lord, you would do that for me. And he did. He did it for you personally, individually. Did it for the whole world too, but for you personally. And individually, I'll tell you, that provokes a lot of worship in our heart toward him. And then David cried out in verse 5, Bow down, you heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of the great waters for the hand, from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is the hand of falsehood. So he calls on God to use all of his resources against his enemy And he acknowledges here that God has resources to use that are beyond anything that his enemies have. And so he talks about flash forth lightning, scatter them, shoot your arrows, and destroy them. I think it's important to realize that in spiritual warfare, that whenever the devil comes against us, and again we're talking about battle, this is a psalm of battle to remember that God is infinitely greater than the devil. Your God is infinitely greater than the devil. Sometimes people speak of the devil as being the opposite of God. He's on the opposite side, but he isn't the opposite of God because if we speak of him as the opposite of God, it intimates equality on the negative side, on the dark side. And the devil is not an equal of God. The devil is a created being. He is a finite being. And God is an infinite, infinite God. And thus God is infinitely greater than the devil in any battle that he brings against us. And it's good to realize that. God has authority. He has powers. He has weapons. He has resources that scare the devil. And since we are in Christ, and again, greater is He that is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, it's good to remember that, that God is greater than any enemy that we have, and thus He says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On On a harp of ten strings, I will sing to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. And so David says, I'm going to, you, with your deliverance here, what you're doing, I'm going to sing a new song to you on a harp of ten strings. In other words, I'm not going to sing a new song to you and sing it off of a ukulele. What is that? Four, three strings, tip throw through the tulips. I'm going to sing, I'm going to produce another, a new song to praise you for your goodness, your faithfulness, and I'm going to do it on a harp of ten strings, something that's worthy of the beauty of uh, ascribing thanksgiving to you. Rescue me and deliver me from the, hands of fo- the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And so he cries out to the Lord to protect me from the corruption of the people and the nations of this world, that it doesn't intrude into our, our nation, into the nation of Israel. And here's the reason that our sons may be plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be pillars sculptured in uh, palace style. So he calls upon the Lord to protect not only him but the nation from the corrupt influences of the nation around them. And the very first thing that comes into David's mind in his prayer when he thinks about the blessings of God's people and the blessings of the nation of Israel is he thinks about the next generation. Lord, do this for the sake of the next generation. And that's just clear thinking on the part of a man of God. And every nation ought to know that the greatest resource that it possesses is not its factories, not its military, not its industrial base, but its next generation because the next generation is always the future of that nation. And so he prays for, uh, for that the next generation, that they would grow up, become what you want them to be, become beautiful both as men and as women, that our barns may be full supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and tens of thousands in our field, that our oxen may be well-laden. And so for the sake of prosperity, you go into any part of the world that where corruption, lying, this kind of thing becomes a normal part of the culture, an accepted part of the culture, and now you have a corrupted culture, and in that culture you don't find prosperity. You just find... This kind of lying and stealing and cheating and all of it just getting bigger and bigger and bigger until ultimately the people have to throw it off with a bloody revolution and start all over again. So David knew what he was talking about here, that prosperity is tied to righteousness and, and to a lack of corruption, that there be no breaking in or going out, in other words, crime and that there be no outcry in our streets. Don't let that get a foothold at all, Lord, uh, in our nation. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And then Psalm 144 is beautiful how it ends here because David recognizes that he's waging a battle. And anybody that wages a battle... There comes a time where you can grow tired and you want to just stop fighting the battle. What parent doesn't know that? And the raising of children, especially the raising of teenagers, so often in the culture. We have to raise teenagers against the flow of the whole culture around us. Sometimes they do these articles and everything on the declining birth rate in the Western nations of the world. And then they marvel. Why are they doing it? I think it's materialism. that that people want more things rather than children anymore. But I think a lot of people just look at it and they say, I'm not going to have to fight, uh, have kids, and I'm going to have to fight against the whole wide world in order to raise them in a proper way. Well, I'm thankful that not everybody thinks that way because we need a godly generation to be raised as well. But sometimes you can just grow tired in the fight and a person can be... Uh, tempted to just say, all right, I'm going to give up in the battle and uh, the attempt of the devil to establish kind of a foothold in our life as as the enemy was trying to develop a foothold in the nation of, of Israel. But then somehow the Holy Spirit causes us to realize that... That all of the blessings that come with a righteous life, and that it is worth protecting that to remember the blessings that result as a result of doing right and being right, and the blessings that we're protecting by continuing that relationship uh, with God. I like one of my favorite v- verses in the book of, of Ephesians, as it talks about "Give no place to the devil." It talks specifically about anger there, and. Um, and wrath. But that phrase that speaks of give no place to the devil, the word place there is topos. It means not the smallest place, not the smallest inch. And that's what David is saying. Don't give the devil, don't give the enemy even the smallest place. Because if you do, by the time he gets that foothold and he moves forward, he will strip everything away from your life. Remember the blessings of righteousness. And when we do, we will realize All of this battle is worth fighting and all that we're protecting is worth fighting for. Psalm 145 is a psalm about the goodness of God. I will extol you, O my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men will speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness and I shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's slow to anger and great in mercy. And here it is in verse nine: The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall praise you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to you the sons of men his make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall, raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of His ways, gracious in all of His works. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth, I will fulfill the desire of those who f- He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless His holy name forever and ever. In this psalm, the theme of this psalm, is that the Lord is good to all. That's a great theme, and it's a great uh, reminder and a great reassurance. And that uh, reassurance is found right in the middle of the psalm in verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and the Holy Spirit puts it there because it's the central theme of the psalm. I remember many years ago now, I was going to another church, in town, and i just i didn 't like this church, so I just started attending another one while I was pastoring i 'd come here first service and then go over there second service, not really, but I remember going to the the church and they had just finished a, building a new sanctuary, and it was just beautiful, and the church Growing and they needed the room and needed the space. And, and I knew that all of this had gone on, and uh, I hadn't been able to pop into the church and just see you know, what God had done. But they had a particular event that was going on at the church that I wanted to attend, a certain speaker. And so I came uh, to the church, and I walked into the sanctuary, and there was a greeter that was standing right there, and when I walked into the sanctuary, it was just a beautiful sanctuary, so functional, all these seats, they needed all of this room and all. And, and, uh, and I said to the usher, I said, Boy, the Lord has been good to you. And without skipping a beat, he said, The Lord is good to all. I just poked him in the eyes. I didn't come to this meeting to be one up by an usher. If I want a Bible study, I'll go someplace else. I'm not coming to you. But I'll tell you, it warms my heart to think about it all the time, and I think about it often, really, what he had to say. So, boy, the Lord's been good to you, and he just reminded me the Lord is good to all. And, of course, he was quoting this very verse right in the middle of Psalm uh, 145, and it's a great truth to be reminded of. And I think it's interesting to realize that this psalm is the last of the eight psalms that are in the book of Psalms that are an acrostic. So if we were reading it in the Hebrew, the first word of each verse in the psalm would begin with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So here we have David examining the goodness of God from A to Z. And I'm not going to go into depth in this, but Psalm 145 to me, along with a couple of other passages in the Bible, it is kind of the equivalent of our Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about all of the blessings that we have, the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. And then Paul begins to list them one after the other, after the other, after the other. And you just go, wow, I thought I had it bad. Now I remember how richly I'm blessed with things that God has given to me that lie out beyond the reach of the world, ever taking them away from me. And Psalm 145 is that, that kind of of a psalm, just example after example of, of God's goodness. In verses 4 through 7, David marvels at God's willingness to be involved in the affairs of man. So once again, there's that that beautiful marveling of David that a God so big, so great, so majestic would be interested in involving himself in our lives, in the affairs of men. And I'll tell you, I... We wonder why so many Psalms are, are in the book of Psalms written by David and not written by someone who thinks that uh, they're a great blessing to God or that it's God's privilege to save them and to use them. And, and it really is this attitude that produces worship within our hearts, as we spoke about a little bit earlier. And so he just praises the Lord for all of his mighty acts and his wondrous works and his awesome acts as a creator and redeem them, children of Israel, out of Egypt and, and all of the things that God did. And of course, for us, New Testament wise, the, greatest example in human history of the mindfulness of God and His mighty works and His wondrous works. The most powerful place that was ever demonstrated was in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. In verse 8, he tells us that God is gracious. That is, He shows favor to us. He shows pity toward us. I think it's important to remember that God pities us in this world. He understands. He understands that this world is not what it was intended to be, but that it's a fallen place and that it is a hard place. Yeah, you still enjoy an ice cream cone. Yeah, there's lots of blessings and there's lots of joys and lots of pleasures and all, but this is not an easy place to live. And we live in one of the best places to live in the whole wide world called the United States of America. And it's not easy to live here. And so God understands that about us. And when we start to talk to him about difficulties and about trials or whatever it might be, he realizes that we need his help and he's eager to give it. He says in verse 8, the Lord is full of compassion, speaking of his love toward us, and the Lord looks at us, and when He looks at us, He's filled with compassion. I hope you know that, that when God looks at you, He's filled with compassion. He's moved with compassion. He understands what you face, and especially as a child of God, what you face in being faithful to Him. He understands that. Nobody else can understand that quite the way that he does. So much of what Jesus did in the New Testament, he did because he was moved with compassion. You know, when he fed those 5,000 men with the five loaves and the two fish, you know why he did it? The Bible tells us he was moved with compassion. He was in communion with with the passion of what people were feeling, the hunger they were feeling, the tiredness they were feeling, the longing for meaning and the need for teaching, all of these things that were going on, he was moved with compassion. You see that phrase over and over again in the New Testament. And I don't think we can ever be reminded too often of, of the fact that God has a heart of compassion toward us. Hebrews the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote, "For we do not have a high priest speaking of Jesus who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Now when I pray to Him in the middle of trial or in the middle of difficulty, or because I'm homesick for heaven or whatever it might be, and I start to explain things to God, I explain them not for his benefit. He doesn't like pull a pad out and pull his iPad out and start, OK. Really, you feel that, and that's what you're going through, and all. He understands all that. I go on and on and on because I have a need to go on and on and on. Jesus walked this earth. He knows it's hard here firsthand, and He knows what we're facing, and He has compassion on us and all of it. He says in verse 8 the Lord is slow to anger, that is, He's patient with us. I'm in awe of the patience of God. He's patient with me. I think He's patient with you too. In fact, I think He's more patient with you than with me. You know, one of the ways that I know that He's patient, how patient He is, is he's working in my life and he's working in my life and he's working in my life and he just takes one area after another that doesn't look like Christ and he says, all right, let's go to work on this thing now and this is what I'm doing and this is what it's supposed to look like and this is why this is happening. And then he goes from this area and he starts to get that, you know, looking pretty good and then he moves on to the next thing and the next thing. And sometimes he'll hit a certain thing even now and I've walked with the Lord since 1980. And he'll come up and he'll work on the next thing. And the next thing that he's working on, he shows it to me. And it's so ugly. And it's so, in my mind, basic for a Christian and you look and say, how did I walk with the Lord for 33 years or however long it's been, and I never quite saw that in the way that you're exposing it to me now. And yet, now you're exposing it to me because it's the time for this to be dealt with. What if he flashed everything that he was needed to work on in our life in one second right when we became a Christian? It all just collapse. But he's so patient. He works and he works and he works. He comes here and then he exposes this and we're all completely condemned by it. And sh- oh, Lord, I can't. How, how? I ought to have that all in line by now? And, and yet he knew, wasn't fretting over it all, he knew that he was going to get to it as number 37 in the list of 6,000 things. Or number 135, and he's so patient to work that way in our life, so slow to anger. In verse 8, we're told that he's great in mercy, that is, his faithfulness. I love it. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, For if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is always faithful to us. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's good, verse 11 and because he uses his power uh, for good. So his power is amazing, but he will never use his power for anything but good in our lives. In verse 14, the Lord is good in that he upholds all who fail or fall. So it's, it's fall there, but you could translate it just as easily to fail. I don't know if you've ever failed as a Christian. i failed as a Christian. David knew something about failure, didn't he? And you fail in life. Before we come to know the Lord, we fail in life. After we come to know the Lord and we think, Lord, is that every time I pray to you, every time you look at me, are you going to remember that sin? Is that sin going to be be my identity forever in your mind? And yet the Bible says that he remembers it no more as he forgives us. And, And the goodness of God, to uphold those who fail. And we think about Peter and all of that, didn't he? Denied the Lord. I'll never deny you. Though these guys deny you, I will never deny you. And uh, he denied three times on that night before it was over. And yet, when we think of Peter, when, when I mention the Apostle Peter, do you think, yeah, the guy that failed Christ, denied him three times when Jesus needed him most? Don't talk to me about Peter. It doesn't even enter our mind unless somebody brings it up related to Peter. When we think about Peter, we think about his humanity. We think about his love for the Lord. We think about how God used him. God will never allow any failure in our life to have the final say or be the dominant kind of thing that we are remembered for. But He will so overwhelm that and make us into a different person that we will be remembered for the new person that He's made us into. He's good, verse 14, because he He raises up all who are bowed down. This is talking about people that are just being crushed by life. People are being crushed by life. I pray every day for revival in this world. I pray for revival in our country because it's the only hope for our country. And I don't mean economically. Oh, give us revival, Lord, so that the stock market stays here or there or whatever. We're talking about people surviving. People are getting crushed under the weight of life and what it's become because the system is so far away from God. And people are buying into the system A doctor recently told me, he said, you know, we were created for a garden. (laughs) And the world isn't a garden anymore. And we have to take and fashion our life in such a way that we protect our life, keep some garden-like aspects to it, and that means keeping the world out of it. I was talking with a lawyer recently, and the lawyer was talking about just kind of the whole and he's not a christian he's talking about the condition of the world people in the world he says they're all uptight everybody's just completely stressed they're worried about paying their house payment, paying their rent. They're worried about putting food on the table. They're worried about saving enough money to get their kids into school and into college. And so they're all uptight. Everybody's waiting just to sue somebody if they look at them cross-eyed. And here is a person that doesn't even know the Lord that is looking and seeing how crazy the world is getting and the pressure that people are under. What does that have to do with revival? I'm hopeful. I don't like what I see in the world around me, but I'm hopeful that there's a tipping point here somewhere where the devil overplays his hand. And what he makes this world into and he gets people to invest in the idea that if I have enough of this or I do this, that ultimately I'll be satisfied and all it does is just crush more people and crush more people and crush more people until there's just like this light goes on for everyone and they realize we've been played as fools in this game. Let's go find God wherever he can be found. And then maybe they'll flood the churches in order to learn about God and come to know the Lord. It's my hope. I may never see it, but I can pray for it every day. And the Lord, because the Lord alone is this, He's the one who raises up those who are bowed down. That's why we can cast all of our cares on Him, knowing that He cares for us. And then in verses 15 and 16, He's good because He provides us and His whole creation with food. I don't know if I'm goofy, but, well, I know that. But every time I sit down and have a meal, I pray, of course, and I thank the Lord for the meal. So you think about the whole course that was necessary. You farmers understand all of this. But what was necessary, I'm going to have a sandwich. It's just going to be a tuna fish sandwich. Just kind of a, regular thing. Think about all that went into that piece of bread making up my sandwich, the soil, the seed, the sunlight, the rain, the everything that goes on. I mean, every, every meal is a miracle that we sit down and eat, a miracle of God that He's provided to us. And David marveled at the goodness of God and all of that. And then in verse 17, he's good because he's righteous in all of his ways. Isn't it wonderful just to obey the Word of God? You say, oh, this is a fork in the road that I'm in, or I need to make a decision here. And what does God's Word say about what I ought to do here? And we discover what God's Word has to say about it, and we make that decision. And when we make that decision, we never have to worry that it's the wrong decision. How much weight gets taken off of our shoulders just on the basis of that? We know we've done the right thing. All right, Lord, it's in your hands. I may be thinking about a lot of things in life, but I never again have to think about whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision. I know it's the right decision. That's a tremendous blessing for a child of God to have and to have that kind of confidence and to have that kind of Peace. It takes enormous weight off of us. And then in verse 18, that the Lord is near to all who call upon Him in truth. And so it speaks about the intimacy of relationship that we have with Him. Not that He's close enough to listen to our conversations, though He is that that close enough. It's the idea that He's near to us in terms of personal relationship. Jesus says, I no longer spoke of the fact. He said, I, I, a greater love has no one than this, than the laid that were down one's life for his friends. I call you friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all things that I heard of my father. I've made known to you. What a friend we have in Jesus. Amazing. We just take it for granted sometimes that God is my friend. But it's an amazing mark of the goodness of God. Verse 19, that he hears our cries and he saves us. Verse 20, that he preserves all who love him. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who's begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. That's a tremendous thing to realize in the difficulty of the world that we find ourselves in, that what God has begun in us, He will bring to completion. You will see me standing on that glassy sea in heaven one day. I'll be there, and then I'll see you. Calvary Chapel, Modesto, right? No, Shelter Cove. All right, all right. We're in heaven. We love everybody, right? And then in verse 20, he judges the wicked, and that's a mark of his goodness as well. One day he'll put an end to all wickedness. And because he is good, verses 1 through 3... He's worthy of our praise. I will extol you, my God, O King, David said. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. Why? Because God is like this every day. He will bless the Father's name forever and ever because God will be like this forever and ever. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. There's a verse in the Bible and it says this, Only good is God. Now if you try to Google that, they'll take you to where the, Jesus is talking to uh, the, the young man that came to Him with all of the possessions and called Him good master and Jesus said, Only, you know, only God is good and, and they enter into the whole dialogue. But in Psalm 73 verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, but it's just as easily translated, Only good is God to Israel. How wonderful is it to sit here tonight as God's people and to know that the God that we know and have a relationship with and we've entrusted our lives and our eternities to, that He is only good in His dealings in our life. He's incapable of being anything else toward us. He is good toward us because He wants to be good toward us, and He knows that we're in need of a God like that. Only good is God. What a privilege it is to be His children and to know Him. Let's stand together, and we'll pray together. Father, we give you praise tonight for our own life and our own experience. We recognize our own relationship in these Psalms, maybe not as deep as David went through, maybe even deeper, sometimes I don't know, about what's represented in the world in, in this room here, Lord, and our relationships with you. But Lord, we know that you have been nothing but good to us. And even in those deep, dark times that David has described tonight, where we wondered how in the world could this be good? How could this be necessary? When you take us through that valley, Lord, valley of the shadow of death, and take us into a new place, and we're able to look back on that and have some small understanding of what it was that you were doing and all of that, we realize that once again, You are only doing a good thing in our lives, and we thank you that we can have that confidence in you concerning every season in our life and every circumstance that we are facing in life today. Thank you that you are a God who does good and loves to do good to us, Lord. We give you our praise. We give you our thanks tonight for being that kind of a God and giving us the great blessing and joy of being able to rest in you and the fact that you will always be just that to us. And we give you praise tonight. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. There are going to be pastors and other men and women.